If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that. We are in the book of Romans, chapter 12, like Pastor Marcel shared with us. And uh, while you're looking for that, let me just give you a bit of a recap. Last week, Pastor Lambert gave us an incredible message highlighting that if you are a follower of Jesus, it is entirely the grace of Jesus. It is his intervening work in your life that compels you to accept the gospel message. That apart from God's grace, we would all spit on the cross. That according to God's sovereign choosing, he saw fit before the dawn of time to draw you to himself. And then he gave you some homework, right? He told you to go home and to read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And I hope you did that, because if you did, then what we're going to look at today is just going to bounce right off the page. It's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. And so as we are discerning God's word, we are finally getting to kind of the middle section of Romans, the entire book. This is where everything goes from everything we've learned about Jesus and what he has done for us and what he has done through the cross, moving toward one word that we see in the very first verse. Look at your Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What's the word? Help me out. Oh, that, come on, help me out. What's the word? Therefore. And you know, every time you hear the word therefore, that is a concluding remark, isn't it? It means that he is finishing something. He's not starting something new. So he's still in the God's sovereign choosing section of this conversation. Right? It's not a new topic. I know your Bible has a new chapter. Paul didn't put that there. That was added later. And you know, like I like to share with you, every time you see a therefore, you ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? That's right. And so we're always looking back even as we look forward. See, only relying on Romans chapter 12 and just kind of diving into it uh, right away would kind of be like watching... Or skipping Lord of the Rings chapter 1, the Fellowship of the Rings. Skipping Lord of the Rings 2, the two towers. And skipping the first half of Lord of the Rings 3. And then just watching the final battle. And you see orcs and humans and elves all wrestling and fighting with each other. And it's kind of cool. But you're wondering, what, what are they fighting about? What's going on? What's the reason for the season? And that's what we have right here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brings us back. He's concluding everything that we have been learning for the last six months. We started the series all the way back in May, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. So really quick, for the sake of our guests, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's two things that I know about you. Two things that I know according to scripture, according to Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. Number one, your faith is a gift Your faith in Jesus is a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. And if you feel that way, like I've said to you, you need to recognize that apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit, aside from him coming toward you and leading your heart toward Jesus, the action of our hearts, according to our sin nature, is to spit on Jesus' grace. That's what we all would have done if it were not for the interworking work of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And then we read this in Romans chapter 3. Take a look at this. It says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely, how? By his grace, 
through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no difference. I like the ESV translation. It says, there is no distinction. This is what I love about the church. There is no distinction. What that means is, even as each and every one of us comes in this morning, we have different stories, right? We've all had different weeks. Some of us might be coming in here on cloud nine. You had an amazing week. And others of us are coming in here heavy burdened, struggling, fighting and grappling with life's circumstances. And what God says is he meets all of you in that place, right where you are. See, this is what I love about the church, is we are meant to be kind of like a hospital. There's no presumption that that everyone kind of came in here or someone came in here clean. There's no grace graduates in this building or watching online this morning. Every single one of us comes in here tired and filled with sin. But God meets us in that. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, and through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he gives us precisely what we need. And that's what we read in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, So Paul is saying, Justin, in your life, here's what you earned, death. Here's what you rightly deserve, death. Here are the wages that are outstanding to you, death. But here's what you received, eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. All of it is the work of Jesus. And then here's the second thing, right on the heels of that, number two, if you have been called by God and if your faith in Christ Jesus is a gift, if you are a follower of Jesus, then number two, you have been called for a purpose. And we read this two weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. There's a fourth dimensional truth that is extremely difficult to understand. What does that mean? Before the dawn of time, God called you to himself. You hadn't done anything yet. You weren't even born. The foundations of the universe hadn't even been set yet. And God had predestined us. Why? To be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So, why were you chosen before the foundation of the world? So that you could be an evangelist. So that you could bear witness to what Christ has done in your life. So you could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters who would come to know the work of Jesus. So that you could be a signpost in the lives of others. And you could say, look at what Jesus has done in my life. And then they could be included in that too. So both of those things have been given to us on the front end. Before we get to Romans chapter 12. That your faith in Jesus is a gift. It is all the work of God's grace. And number two, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary. God has called you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. You know how long it will last? By the duration of an eternity with the people you come into contact with as you share your faith with others who do not yet know the name of Jesus. And so I put it this way in your note sheet. What's the therefore, therefore? It communicates this. We are all sinners saved by grace with a task 
to bear witness. That's kind of a a very short summary of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. We are sinners saved by grace with a task to bear witness. And then he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what an image, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Living sacrifices. It, it seems oxymoronic, doesn't it? And in fact, if you read the Greek, the word sacrifices is a little bit tame. It literally means killing. That's what it means. So Paul is saying, you are to be a living killing. A living killing. That's what he's saying. Like, how does that make any sense? What, what are you calling us to do to be a living killing? Well, now you have to think like a Jew for a second, and you have to recognize that before the cross of Christ, the commandment that they received in the Old Testament is that they were to um, make atonement for their sins through a substitute. So they would slaughter a lamb or another animal. They would put it up on the offering. It would be consumed by fire and that would appease the wrath of God. And that's the image that he's using for you. <laughs> be encouraged. That's, the, that's what he wants us to have in our minds as we're thinking about this. That we are to be a living killing. But here's what we find. Through Jesus, we no longer sacrifice animals. Why? Because he is our atoning sacrifice for all of our sins once for all and so it would be wrong for us to continue to sacrifice animals. What we find in the Old Testament is all of those sacrifices they did nothing to address the principal payment of our sin debt. It was just dealing with the interest to appease the wrath of God. Then comes along Jesus and he pays off all the principal and more. So that we are set free. So now, in light of everything that Jesus has done for you, with that vision in mind, Paul says, you in your life, be a living killing. But still, we might ask ourselves a question. What does that look like? So let me try and answer that question with a story. As Pastor Marcel has already shared with us, it's Reformation Day today. And I just love that he encouraged the kids to go and ask their parents because we as parents, we all know what happened on Reformation Day, right? Okay, let me help you. If your kids ask, this is what happened. 504 years ago, Martin Luther, he took his 95 theses, and as the story goes, he nails them on the door in Wittenberg, Germany. Whether that happened or not, who knows? But he did have the 95 theses, and everyone read them, and what undergirded these, what was the foundation of this, is what we find this morning. What was happening during that time? Well, the finer points of doctrine that they were dealing with were the doctrine of justification, sanctification, things like indulgences, all these things that were happening in the church. And Martin Luther wanted to communicate to the Catholic Church and to everyone else that the church and the Pope were on the wrong path. During that time, only the priest was able to read scripture. No one else was. Only the priest was able to engage in ministry. No one else was. And the way that you earn salvation is if you tried really hard. And he said, it's a gift. It's the free gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Now here's the really interesting thing that I love about the Reformation. 
What inspired that generation was not the finer points of doctrine like justification, sanctification, indulgences, all those things, even though they were there. What captured the imagination of Christians during that time was the notion that lay people were able to engage in equally spiritual ministry to that of the Pope. That a farmer out in the field or a mother weaning her children and changing poopy diapers, or a teacher in her classroom, or a custodian moving around a mop, were engaged in equally spiritual practices to that of the Pope. That was the radical idea of the Reformation. That if you are engaged in any type of work to God's glory, that is holy work. That is holy spiritual kingdom building work I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it when he uh, uses Romans chapter 12 verse 1 he says it this way here's what I want you to do God helping you take your everyday ordinary life your sleeping eating going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering And I just love that today is Reformation Day, and today we're looking at Romans chapter 12. I promise, I didn't plan this. This is all in God's providential plan. It all came together for today for us to look at this. 504 years later, and we're still grappling with this. We're still trying to understand what this means. So when Paul says we're to be a living killing, he's actually pointing back to something that he's already said. He said this in Romans chapter 6. It says this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Do not offer yourselves over to sinfulness. Offer yourselves to to God. And then we read in verse 2, take a look at this with me, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I think the question, the right question that we have to ask is, well, if we're not to conform to the pattern of this world, then what does it look like? How can I guard my heart from those things? What does it look like for people to conform to the pattern of this world? Let me give you three. And each of these three are outlined in Romans chapter 1 and again here in Romans chapter 12. The first one is this. We worship and serve creation rather than the creator. We worship and serve creation rather than the creator. And I intend to bear no offense this morning, but if you are not a follower of Jesus... Scripture says, this is how you live. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then it's not as though you're off the hook. We know that on account of our sin nature, the traitor within, this is something that we're going to grapple with every moment of every day of our lives. Because the temptation of our sin nature is to not want God, but to want his stuff. To have no interest in having a relationship with God, enjoying his beauty and his magnificence and his splendor and his glory. 
but to just want all the things that comes with it, the benefits that comes with knowing God. God, I don't want you. I don't want intimacy with you. I want your things. That's what I'm most interested in. And here's how this works. I hope you hear this. The key to worshiping the creator rather than creation is this. We have to see that all of us have been made in such a way that when we engage with creation, it's meant to roll past itself toward the creator. For us to delight in the creator of those things as we engage in those things. Does that make sense? So whether it's eating food, or going for a walk, or using our bodies, or going for a run, or whatever else it might be, it's not a means unto itself. But it's a window, a gateway, into us having a greater level of intimacy and depth and knowledge and relationship with the creator of those things. For us to understand God more fully. I love the way that Westminster Catechism question and answer puts this. It's so vivid, so clear. It says this. What is the chief end of man? What's your purpose? I mean, like, how many people are asking that question today? What is my purpose in life? Why am I here? Well, the answer is this. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him. I've been a pastor for almost 10 years And I can't tell you the number of Christians I have talked to who still don't understand this teaching. See, many of us, the way that we interpret scripture and the way that we talk about God is, yeah, sure, he does some good things in your life, but you better measure up. Right? There's certain things that I have to do. I have to listen to God's righteous rules. And if I do that, then I'll get my golden ticket to heaven. It's such a backwards way of thinking about it. What God is really saying is, if you can see me for who I truly am, and everything in creation has been given to you as a gift for you to understand who I am better, then you understand that your chief purpose in this life is to enjoy me, and for me to enjoy you. Like Adam, in the Garden of Eden, before they fell into sin, he walked with God in the cool of the day. What an image. That we would enjoy one another, even in the midst of enjoying the creation that he has made. So let me give you an example of this. Who here, by a show of hands, likes food? Anyone like food? Isn't food awesome? I absolutely love it. Here's what I have in my mind. A filet mignon, all right? But not just anyone. Dry brine before, and then you, you cold smoke it for uh, a couple of hours until it reaches about 115 degrees and then you sear it off to a perfect medium rare. And then you have potatoes on the side, but not any potatoes, the ones where you fill it with cream and milk and cheese and cream cheese and other things so that it no longer tastes like potatoes, those kinds of potatoes. And then, because I know some young people are here, sure, vegetables can come in, but not really part of my story. But let's just suppose they're just cooked in butter, all right? And they're on the plate and a, a good glass of wine and some good friends. And you got yourself an incredible night, don't you? But let me ask you a question. Who has the better night? The person who goes to the filet mignon buffet and he has all the money that money can buy and he gorges himself on filet mignons. Want a second, want a third, want a fourth? Don't mind if I do. And he just enjoys the food. Or the person after a great night with friends, enjoying this filet mignon, laying down in bed, he says, who am I, Lord, that you have given me such good gifts? Who am I that you have given me incredible friends? 
I know that not everyone has great friends like I do. And I'm not eating craft dinner tonight. I'm enjoying some good food. And Lord, you gave it flavor for whatever reason. I don't know, but it tastes awesome. Lord, thank you so much for everything that you've given me. Who has the better night? The person who enjoys creation or the one who rolls past the creation toward the creator of that meal? See, if you are tempted to say the person who gorged themselves as the better night, well, then it would be fair to assume that the happiest people on the planet would be the richest, with the most toys, who have the most sex, who have the most experiences, the greatest highs, the highest level of fame and fortune that money can buy. Those are the people who are probably happiest in this world. Now, I want you to do something for a second. Think about someone who's kind of in the public light, whose life you would like to have. Maybe it's a professional athlete, or maybe it's a politician, or maybe it's someone who runs a Fortune 500 company like Jeff Bezos, and you just get to go up to space, you know? Think about someone that you want to emulate, whose life you want to have. Do you got that image of that person in your mind? I have a person in my mind that I want to introduce you to. He's a man who's had all of that and more. According to my research, he's a man that everyone wants to be. Women want to be with him. He's married to a supermodel. He has a net worth of almost $300 million. He's one of the most famous athletes in the world. This one will give him away. He has seven Super Bowl rings. Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. And his name is... What's his name? Tom Brady. Of course we all know. Tom Brady. What a guy. Here's the interesting thing. I want to introduce you to the Tom Brady of 2008. He had an interview, a CBS interview during that time, and he was basically asked whether he has reached all of his desired goals. And he's going to give an answer to that question. And by all accounts, even 15 years later, four additional rings later, he's still asking these same questions. Take a look. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. If football isn't your thing, I encourage you to go and watch The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. I remember watching that documentary and by the end of it thinking to myself, I pity the man. He's the best athlete in the world, the best basketball player of all time. And now he's got a big house with everything he wants and no one to share it with. So many examples of this in our world of people who have reached the echelon. They have everything that the world can give and still they're asking that question, isn't there something more? Is this it? See, here's, here's what happens. Even if you get everything you want in this life, everything that creation can offer, you are doomed to shallow trivialities outside of the gospel. And no matter how much you yearn and strive and seek and pull and push, you're probably not going to have a life like Tom Brady. 
All right, hate to break it to you. Maybe some of you still think, you know what, I think I can have a better life than him. I hate to break it to you, but he's kind of reached it. And still he's empty because he's looking for all the right things and all the wrong reasons. He's looking to creation to fill the God-sized hole in his heart. And right on the heels of that, here's the second thing that happens when we are patterned according to this world. Number two, we believe the lie over the truth of God. Though I've never had someone come up to me and, and say this out loud, many of our lives are built around a posturing that we are smarter than God. Right? I've never heard someone say it. But oftentimes, if you look at our habits and our behaviors, our life is a whole lot like that. And there's two ways that you can do this. For, for non-Christians, they might just say, I have no interest in God and what he says. I don't even know if he exists. I'm not interested in having that conversation with him. But there's also a churchy way that we can do this. And the way that, that churchgoers can often do it is we, we go to church we might even read our Bible from time to time. We pray, but we don't invest our lives in such a way that this is the ultimate authority of our life. We don't devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We don't devote ourselves to Scripture. Why do we do that? Well, maybe it's because we think that we kind of know what's best for us. We know how to live our own lives. And scripture will grant to you this, Proverbs 14, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Bible grants it to you. Yeah, sure, there, there might be a way that appears to be right to you, but in the end it'll lead to your death. And that is why, as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to constantly remind you that what we need to do is to recognize that when scripture says jump, our question is, how high, Lord? A foot, two feet, ten feet? What do you want me to do? Lord, I am devoted to your word. I want to follow you in obedience and love. And I'll be honest with you. Can I be honest for a second? It's church. We should be honest. There's certain parts of this book that I wish weren't there. There's certain elements of this book where I feel it in my heart, I feel a yearning in my chest, where I say, God, I think you made a mistake on this one. I think there's certain parts here that you just didn't fully think it through. And because of that, I know the temptation in my own heart is to start bringing out, you know, the, the little scratch pen and to say, okay, God, I'm fully devoted to 99% of what you got here but there's 1% that just needs to be omitted or changed or modified or something. And I know if I feel that way, maybe you do too. There is a yearning inside my heart that says, I'm smarter than God. So my only option is to say that God is infinitely wiser than me. Hello? Hello? God is infinitely wiser than me, no matter what I think or what I want to say. That is what I struggle with. And so we worship and serve creation rather than the creator, and we believe the lie over the truth of God. And number three, we fail to acknowledge him. We fail to acknowledge him. Let me give you a really practical example of this. Something we all wrestle with and, and something I see all the time 
as a pastor. People, yes, even Christians, struggle with boasting in things they ought not boast about. I see this all the time. That in our life, we might think to ourselves, my, like, yeah, I know God has given me gifts, he's given me talents and abilities, I'll grant that, but I worked hard, you know? I worked really hard to get to where I am. Well, that's great, but let me inform you of something. God not only gave you your gifts and abilities and talents, he also gave you your drive. He also gave you the people in your life who helped form you and shape you so that you could be the person that you are. And so regardless of your circumstances, if you are the most successful person in the world, or if you're still struggling to make ends meet, regardless of who you are, everything is glory to God. He gets all the glory. And my concern for you is if you take credit and you walk around with a swagger and you boast in the things that have happened in your life, you're going to make yourself into a blasphemer. Don't do it. God is the one who has given you your gifts and your abilities and your talents and your drive and everything that you have and everything that you are. It all belongs to God. And if it's his, don't touch it. Don't touch it. It all belongs to him. And I think it's something that, that we need to daily repent of. I know even in my own life, if, if I receive a compliment of any kind, you know what the first thing I think about is? God's so lucky to have me on his team. And then later I have to go home and I have to repent of it and say, God, I think I took the steering wheel again. I gotta, I gotta give this back to you. I am so sorry, Lord, for making it about me and not about you. Because it's all about God and everything that he does for us. And I think it's something that we need to almost daily repent of. You know what, you know what it's like? It's kind of like a paintbrush in the hands of Picasso who starts walking around with a swagger around all the other paintbrushes saying, look at what I built, look at me. Like, of course a paintbrush wouldn't do that. It's all about Picasso, not about paintbrush. And part of walking with God is recognizing that you are a paintbrush in God's hands. You are a pencil, he is the author. You are the clay, he is the potter. He is the one who forms good things in you. And so you say, all right, Justin, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but, but how do we make sure we don't do that? What do we do? Look at your Bible again. It says this, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Help me out. What's the word? The renewing of your what? Your mind. The renewing of your mind. And I love that because here's what this says. The way that you are patterned toward God is you are transformed. That's a passive word. You don't transform yourself. You are being transformed by God. How? By the renewing of your mind. Not by the pulling up of your own bootstraps. Not by becoming something that you, are, that you aren't and just trying really hard. And if you try hard enough, you, maybe you'll achieve it. No, it's by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I don't want you to miss that because if you do, then you might look at this book and try to follow all of its righteous rules and in the end, it will leave you dry and bitter and much like the Pharisees of the first century. That's what it'll do. And so it should humble us, recognizing 
that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. He brings you in, and then he molds you into the image and the likeness of his son. He does all of it. So don't miss that. So here's the question I put in your note sheet. How are we transformed in the renewing of our mind? Where does it start? It starts this way. When we behold the glory of Jesus. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope you hear this. How do we do it? When you behold the glory and the beauty and the splendor of Jesus. Not when you try harder. Not when you pull yourself up. But when you see Jesus for who he truly is, and it melts your heart, and it renews your mind, and you say, wow, God, look at everything you've done for me. And only in that moment are you truly transformed. Otherwise, you're kind of just taking cardboard cutouts of apples and nailing them on a tree. It's not fruit, it's fabrication. God says, the only way that you will bear fruit is if you can behold me for who I am and for what I've done for you, and that you would enjoy me and that I would enjoy you, and then I would cultivate these good gifts in you, and I would rejoice in the good things that are happening in your life. I love that old hymn. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. How? In the light of his glory and grace. So how do the things of earth grow strangely dim? When we try hard? No. When you behold Jesus for who he truly is. And only when you behold Jesus and see him for who he truly is will he melt your heart and renew your mind. That's the life change that begins to happen. And then we see verse 3. Verse 3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Now, here's what I love about this. The moment you behold the glory of Jesus and your mind is transformed and your heart is softened, instantly, do you know what it does? It goes after your ego right away. All the self-promotion, the self-aggrandizing, the self-appeal, the selfishness, all of it starts getting attacked instantly. I've shared with you before that perhaps the most noticeable element of our sin nature is our narcissism. That big banner that kind of goes over all of our heads that reads, I'm the center of the universe. Right? On account of our sin nature, the traitor within, we all want to make it about us. It's all about me. And let me just very gingerly give you an example of, of kind of how this plays out in our life. Even for Christians. Many Christians pick churches exactly the same way as this. Do you know what we do? We ask questions like, what's the preaching like? What's the worship like? What are the children's ministries like? The programs, the amenities. What's in it? For me. And unfortunately, what that shows is a heart of consumerism rather than discipleship that's happening within the church when we do that. Why is it that we often treat churches the same way that we treat McDonald's and Taco Bell? What do you want to have for lunch? 
Oh, I think I want McDonald's. No, their burgers are so dry and tasteless. Let's go to Taco Bell instead. We do exactly the same thing. And so here's, here's what I want to do. I know this is potentially dangerous uh, to say in your home church, but, but I just feel a conviction from the Lord to, to share this. And I'm going to ask a question of our guests, people who are either online or here this morning who are contemplating stepping in and becoming a member of Gateway. And as Pastor Marcel has already shared, I am so delighted that you are here, that you are in this place. But if you are tempted to try to come to a new church on the basis of preaching or worship or programs or amenities, I just want to ask you to stop for a second. And in its place, I want you to ask just one question. And so important to me, I put it up on the screen. This is the question I, I want you to ask of yourself later. Lord, where are you leading me? Where are you leading me? And... Where can I best use the gifts that you have given me to expand your kingdom? That's the question I think that we need to be asking when we're contemplating where we're going to go. I put it this way in your note sheet. What are the signs of a renewed mind? The first one is this. When we stop being consumers and instead we become ministers. See, that's why I feel like I can be so bold to ask that question and, and to know on the front end, if if this conversation leads you to not come to Gateway and to go somewhere else, I get to say, praise the Lord. Because we're not in the business of building our little uh, Gateway Kingdom empire. We are a very small part of the Capital C Church. We are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. So whether you go to Trinity or New Life or Living Hope or you go to Northview or you go to Calvin Presbyterian, wherever you go, we are partners in ministry. And you might say, I feel the Lord drawing me to this place so that I can grow in faith and use my gifts. I say, praise the Lord, step in. But if you still feel that yearning in your heart that says, I feel like the Lord is leading me elsewhere, then you must go with God's blessing. But one thing we cannot do is to treat all these local area churches like a series of restaurants that we pick and choose from. We can't do it. You know, it's exactly the same thing that we were struggling with 504 years ago on this day at the start of the Reformation. We had believers who were passive pew sitters, recipients of ministry, consumers. And Martin Luther said, I'm reading scripture, Romans 1, Romans 12, and I see something's wrong here. Because we all need to be ministers of his word. And I believe we need a new Reformation today. Maybe not one of orthodoxy, but of orthopraxy. What does it mean to live this out in our life? That we would become disciples who become disciple makers for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what we're all about. Not about just being consumers of ministry. And if we do that, if we do that here, we need to repent of it. And to say we are missing the mark. That is not the purpose of the church. A renewed mind starts rightly in our lives under the shadow of God's glory. And then we pick up verse 4. It says this. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Circle, highlight, underline. Each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, 
And we'll stop right there for a second. So here's the second point that I want you to see. Each member belongs to all the others. So here's what this means. In order for me to be all that I am created to be, I need you to be all that you are created to be, and then only together can we function as a holistic, vibrant, and healthy church. It's the only way. And so what that might look like is, picture this in your mind. At Gateway, we have 406 adult members, including all of our children. It's a little over 700, but for the sake of this image, 406 adult members. Picture this in your mind. You have a key, a turnkey to a door that has 406 locks, and you come individually, but we all come collectively, and each of us turns one of the lock keys. And once all of us do it together, only then is the door open for us to see all that we have been created to be. We need one another in order to do this. It's not about any one person or a couple of people. We all have to engage in ministry. And so I put it this way in your note sheet. We stop becoming individuals, and in its place we become a family. We become the family of God. You see that? And what do healthy families do? They cry together, they mourn together, they fight together, they argue together, they discern together, they use their time and gift and energy and talents together. They do all of this under the roof together. And that's what we read in verse 6 through 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so I put it this way in your note sheet. We stop becoming church attenders and we become gift givers. Gift givers. So this is what it might look like. Maybe you're in a life group or a home group right now or a small group that's similar to it. And when you're in that group, you, you say to a brother or to a sister, my goodness, your, your gifts and leadership are just so incredible. Thank you for leading this group. Or the way that you serve encourages me, sister. I'm so grateful for the way that you lead us and give us greater boldness and conviction to serve in our community. Or you're such a prayer warrior. Thank you for praying for me, for this group, and for the needs of our congregation. It's only when we get into those circle environment, not in rows, but in circles, can we, one, discern our own gifts, and two, equip others to use theirs more effectively. But it's only together that we can do this. We can't do it just here in this place, just as, as passive pew sitters. We have to be discerning with one another. And so here's how I want to end this morning. The last thing that I want to do today is for you to feel like you just received a bunch of God's righteous rules. Or for you to think, you know what, I, I got to serve. I'm not serving, so I better sign up to serve at kids church, as a kids' church volunteer, as much as I would love for you to serve as a kids' church volunteer. But here's what I know. What I know is that guilt and duty alone are a weak motivator to do the right thing. Guilt and duty alone are a weak motivator to do the right thing. And so in its place, I want you to come back with me and to see what we read at the very beginning, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 
Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sister, sisters, in view of God's mercy. That's what he says, in view of God's mercy. Beholding the mercy of Jesus. Beholding God for who he is. That is the only way that you are going to change, is if you have a renewing of your mind and a changing of your heart, not out of some sort of dutiful obligation. And so here's the fourth and final point I want to give to you. If, what are the signs of a renewed mind? We stop faking it and we're honest with ourselves. We stop faking it and we're honest with ourselves. See, in church world, we're, we're tempted to do this thing where we act like everything is okay when it isn't. Why do we do that? Why are we tempted to do that? Like you, you come in here and, and we all say everything's fine, life's fine, everyone's great, we're all doing great. But you know the experiences that you had this week. You know the struggles that you've had. You know the frustrations, the anxieties, the frustrations, the worries. And for whatever reason, we feel like in church, this is the place where we have to fake it till we make it. But let me tell you something. God knows. God knows. It's not like God does this for six days of the week. And then on Sunday, he turns around and he goes, oh, yep, there's Justin in church. Dressed well. All right. See you next week. And turns around again. No, he, he knows. He knows what you're dealing with. And the church is meant to be a place. I, I think of uh, that old show, MASH, right? Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, right? That's what churches are meant to be, like hospitals. When we enter in through the lobby doors, instantly we should all be united under one idea. We are all collectively sinners saved by grace. All of us. We come together under the pretense of knowing that life isn't great. And because of that, we should have a courage to say, you know what? I need help. Life is not going great. Life sucks right now. I'm struggling. The church ought to be the place where we can be the most real and vulnerable with who we are and where we are. This is the place to do it. Because here's what's so amazing. Where sin is present... God's grace abounds all the more. Where marriages are busted, God's grace abounds all the more. Where I'm struggling with addiction, God's grace abounds all the more. Where I'm struggling with doubt, God's grace abounds all the more. Whatever you're struggling with, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Bring it here. Bring it to this place. This is what the church is meant to be. And, and can, we just, can we just agree that Gateway is not going to be a place where we play that game? Where we fake it till we make it? Where we act like everything's okay? But we can truly be honest with ourselves and with one another? And to say, you know what? Life sucked this week. And then on the other side, they could say something like, I don't know what to say. Like Pastor Marcel shared, I don't know what to say. Can I pray with you? I want to be the type of Christian that shakes 
the gates of hell. I want to make a difference. I want us as a church to make real, radical, life-giving, eternal, substantive change. And to not just walk through the motions. But what it's going to take is for us to be honest with ourselves. And to behold the glory of God. And to say, God, look at what you've done for me. Look at everything you've done. I am so grateful, God. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Use me. My hope and my prayer for you and for me and for us as a church is that we would have the willingness to step in and to be honest with ourselves because there is no way forward if we can't be honest with where we are. Give it to God. If you want to come and talk later and say, you know what, Justin, that's me. No one's going to be looking at you. No one's going to say, oh my goodness, someone actually walked up and shared that they're struggling. You're the one person who's honest enough to come up. So come and share. If life sucks, if you're struggling, let the church be the church. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and how it changes our hearts and our minds and our lives. Lord, we repent of the ways in which we've made it all about me. It is our longing, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us as individuals to stop being consumers and that in its place, we would engage in the ministry that you have called us to and collectively as a church that you would use us to advance your kingdom here in the Fraser Valley. And so, Lord, have your way with us. Do an incredible work in our hearts as we behold the glory of your face. Give us a vision, Lord, for your glory. Help us to know you for who you are. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen.